Welcome to Soundstage Insider, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the film and television industry. We're bringing you the visionary directors and producers, the talented cinematographers, editors, sound designers, and more who really make the magic happen. We delve deep into their stories, their struggles, and their triumphs. So let's go beyond the red carpet and discover a fascinating world of behind-the-scenes talent. Hello there, welcome to Soundstage Insider. We have a really interesting episode today with creative director and visual effects supervisor Moen Leo. Now, he works for ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, which I'm sure you're familiar with, but of course, most famously connected to Star Wars, but they've produced and worked on incredible productions for the last, ooh, what's that, 50 years, something like that. So Moen's really, really fascinating and really interesting. And he goes into the process for creating visual effects and his responsibility as creative director and supervisor to make sure that they all work together and as part of a cohesive whole. So yes, that's it. We're going to keep it brief. This is Moen Leo, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, so thank you so much for joining me today. I'm very excited to talk to you about your career. So first off, can we kick off finding out a little bit about how you started in your visual effects journey? Oh, so I I grew up in uh, Berlin, Germany, and initially I started uh, studying computer science, uh, realized that I did not want to be a full-time software engineer, was thinking about switching to industrial design because I always enjoyed sort of the mix of more scientific engineering stuff with an artistic slant. You know, I'd always done like even some computer graphics in my spare time and worked with CAD programs and stuff like that. And uh, as I was sort of waiting to switch basically majors at university, um, I had some time off and uh, did an internship at a computer graphics company in Berlin and at the end of the internship, they offered me a job. And I absolutely just from the moment I sort of touched, you know, like at the time, soft image and uh, did some like very basic flame work and stuff at this really small company. I only had like six employees. I was just hooked and absolutely loved. It. And I figured, why go back to school for another, <laughs> another four years if yeah. there's a job that I, I really like? So I, I worked in uh, in that company for um, close to two years in in Berlin, um, doing mostly like commercials work, you know, like TV commercials and like uh, stuff like that. And then uh, went to SIGGRAPH, applied at a wide variety of both visual effects and video game companies because I could imagine myself doing either, and was very very surprised when I got a, a job offer from uh, Industrial Light and Magic because that was certainly something, it was weird because at the time, you know, I thought like, oh, well, if I work in this industry for 10 years, then maybe one day I can apply at ILM. And then uh, basically with my first application at ILM, they were like, oh yeah, we have a job if you want it. Slightly daunting. But then once I showed up there, it, it was such a relaxed and, and collaborative environment that, that I just really enjoyed being there. and worked there for a few years. Yeah. And then, then I got a little bit restless as, as I want to do. And so I um, went to another company where I knew people, ESC Entertainment, where we did the 
primarily the Matrix sequels. Um, went back to ILM for a little bit, then went to Digital Domain in Los Angeles for a bit. Again, just wanting to live in different places and have like different experiences. Then I got an offer from ILM to go to Singapore, so I moved to Singapore for a few years. So I just kind of like bouncing around. Yeah, I love that. Well, two things strike me about that, that there's two amazing sort of moments in your career. One was discovering your passion so early on in your your life, really. And then, of course, then was the initial ILM job offer. So that's that's yeah. pretty amazing, two things to happen so early on in your life. Yeah, it was, I have to say it was sort of a little bit disorienting as well because <laughs> it sort of was this thing where it's like, oh, I really like working in computer graphics and I have this dream of one day working on movies. And then literally like two years later, I was doing that and I was like, okay, <laughs> now what? <laughs> Whoa, um, slow down. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's what ultimately made it relatively easy then to to not become too attached with a particular you know job or location because i felt after i worked on you know even a couple of star wars movies in my first stint at ilm i felt very sort of free to go okay well i've done that i want to see you know what else there is what other companies there are what other experiences there are and i, I absolutely did not regret that because i feel like every time i went to a different company i experienced sort of a different approach to the work, a different culture uh, of work, you know, and I think that ultimately just made it more both educational and just more sort of enjoyable. Yeah, I love that. And it sort of reminds me of when Matt Damon won his Oscar so early in his career that it really sort of took that pressure off. It was like, well, that's done. Now I can just <laughs> focus on being creative. And yeah, love that. Um, yeah. So it strikes me that visual effects are an very interesting combination of creative and technical. And you mm. said you you studied physics and computer science. I read that on your bio. Yeah. yeah. Um, how would you describe yourself in terms of the sort of creative to practical, or is it a real mishmash of skills that you have? I I think I probably had always more of a passion for creative work, but an aptitude for technical work. And so to this day, I basically can't really draw anything unless there's a control Z undo option. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I'm pretty good in Photoshop, but only because there are ways of sort of, you know, getting around your, your artistic limitations, maybe that you might have with a, with a, with a pen. And so I think, also, what, what really attracted me from the start was um, simulation work, you know, and that's really where, when I would work as an artist, the, the majority of time that I worked as an artist was as an effects TD or simulation TD. That really sort of combined all of the things that I enjoyed, obviously, the, the, you know, being part of filmmaking, my interest in, in physics, my interest in computer science, because uh, in particular, at the time early on, there was still quite a bit, and sometimes still is, like of scripting involved when you're doing um, simulation work, and then and then just having sort of a passion for blowing stuff up. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think I uh, always gravitated towards um, projects and and within projects to the work that was sort of like yeah, just spectacular effects work, you know, like destruction work and and fire and um, you know collapsing buildings and giant waves and stuff like that. And so I think that that work as an effects TD really combined all of the things I liked the best about the, the field I was working in. 
I don't want to sidetrack us too much, but it makes me think of the Oppenheimer movie with the practical bomb. I have not seen that yet. <laughs> no, right? It sounds amazing. I haven't seen it yet either, but... Did they actually set up a nuke? That's the kind of thing no one would do, no? Right, um, exactly. <laughs> no visual effects required. Yeah, I think it was some really minor visual effects, but the actual bomb was real, right? I think that's that's yeah. what I heard. I, I mean, I think that's uh, ultimately to this day, you know, even now working on, on Andor... Uh, my attitude is always: if you can do it practical, do it practical. And then if it if it falls short somewhere, if we need to augment it later, we'll augment it later. But the choice between simulating a car blowing up and actually blowing up a car, I always pick the blowing up a car off. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. That's cool. So a lot of our listeners are not visual effects artists themselves; they're you know interested in film and TV in general. So just to go back to the start here and can you define exactly what a visual effects artist is what they do and and what kind of shots would you see them in movies and film and tv yeah i mean visual effects is really sort of i think defined as the part of filmmaking where you use computer graphics to create imagery that goes into a um into a film or television show and that can range on one end of the spectrum from you know like a CG dinosaur or spaceships or a fantastical environment. But more often than not, it can also be just really mundane things like an average show. You probably have a few dozen shots where just uh, sound operators boom dips into frame and somebody has to paint it out afterwards. You know, that's also considered visual effects. So really anytime you use uh, computer graphics tools to um, generate or alter the material that was shot or sometimes to create fully computer-generated sequences for a film or television that would, or, or commercials that would be considered visual effects. Artists um, tend to be fairly highly specialized, in particular in sort of the high-end work that you see in film and, and high-end television, uh, in the sense that you don't see one artist being given a whole shot and doing everything on that shot, but it really becomes a sort of manufacturing line of people that are specialized. So you'll have one artist that builds the digital models of what you have to put in uh, in the show. Another one will paint them effectively, like digitally, you know, put the textures and the, the colors on them. Another one will light a shot, a different artist will animate the shot. And then what I used to do was basically create things that you can't animate by hand because they're too complex. So, you know, like smoke, water, fire thing, are things that you basically have to run simulations for. And then at the end of the pipeline, you have, you know, compositors that take all of the different layers, like the original footage that was shot and all of the uh, computer graphic layers and sort of combine them into a picture that fits together. And I'm, I'm definitely sort of skipping over some other specialized roles in there as well. There's really a lot of different people that, that come together to put a shot together. So do you think that some of the more mundane practical fixes that you guys do in terms of like you you just said painting out like a boom or, mm. or fixing errors do you think that's going to fall more into the uh responsibility of ai moving forwards and then you guys are left to do more the more of the creative work would you say or i mean i i think some of those tools are uh, some of that work is becoming easier right so and and it has been i think ai is in some ways like creating a big leap forward in some of these tools, but these tools have been getting easier continuously for the last, you know, like 20 plus years. 
where um, removing that boom, you know, 20 years ago was literally a more or less frame by frame, somebody fixing every frame on it. And maybe like 10 years ago, you started having tools where you go like, okay, well, I can actually just like track this boom and I can automatically generate from the surrounding image, you know, what should be there to, to remove the boom. And now I think you're, you're at a point probably where you can just like sort of click on the boom and go like remove that. Uh, so I think that, uh, that continuously progresses and uh, I think that work will become easier. Ultimately, somebody still has to spot the boom and decide, <laughs> decide to paint it out. Somebody still has to do the clicking on it thing. Um, but I think that work, I don't know if anyone ever got excited about painting out a boom. <laughs> you <Right>. know? <laughs> Even the people whose job it is to sort of do paint work, they'd much rather work on something more challenging and interesting than that. So, um, yeah, I think the tools keep evolving. Uh, they keep becoming more powerful. And I think I understand why there is concern with people that have specialized in a very uh, specific part of the process that may become commoditized more by the advancement of tools. But ultimately, that's, I don't also don't think that that's a new thing. You know, I, I think we have people within our company like that started out as practical model makers working with miniatures, you know, and then when the sort of digital revolution of visual effects kind of happened, they basically had to adjust as well and go like, okay, well, I'm no longer physically making models, I'm making models in the computer, you know? And so I think the industry will evolve and it'll change and then the job definitions, uh, definitions will evolve with that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the same in a lot of industries. Um, so I was looking at your IMDB and then I went on the ILM website and your role as visual effects supervisor is described as ensuring the work produced by the studio maintains the highest standards. So that's quite a broad description. <laughs> um, could you uh, explain what the supervisor part of your role is exactly? And yeah. then we can drill in a bit. Yeah, I mean, it ultimately, it, it takes hundreds and hundreds of artists plus technology support staff plus production support staff who do like the logistics and and all that to do the visual effects on a film, you know, like a, um, a major motion picture, like um, fantasy sci-fi film will, will literally have hundreds of visual effects artists work on it um, often for, for months or even over a year. So obviously with that, you have to then have like a hierarchy of departments and supervision. My responsibility ultimately as visual effects supervisor on like a show like Andor, where I oversee all of the work, is that I review basically every shot that is that has to go into the film. So what happens is I'm involved very early in the project before the, the project actually starts filming. We have conversations with uh, the director, with the production designer, how do we achieve things, which parts are going to be computer graphics, which parts are going to be practical sets or special effects, like practical special effects. And then I'm there during the shoot throughout to um, with a team of people that make sure that we get all the measurements, all of the data we need uh, later on to fit our computer graphics into that. So we're present throughout the whole shoot with the directors um, again. And then our work, like the majority of the work really starts as the shoot completes because then editorial turns over sequences to us and says, okay, we're pretty happy with these, we think these shots are going to be in the sequence and they're this long. 
And so now start doing your, your work on that. And so then, you know, the, the different departments, they built all the different pieces, like the creatures and the uh, spaceships and everything that has the environments that has to go into those. And I'll regularly sort of review that work. I brief them initially on the, on the intention of the production designer and the director and say, okay, you know, they want this kind of a feel for this scene, for this environment. And then it's a very iterative process where often I see like a dozen or so iterations of a shot or an environment or something. I'll give my initial feedback and go like, mm, it's not quite, I think, what the director was looking for. Or if I think it's close enough, then I have regular meetings with the director or in the case of a TV show, the showrunner, and I'll present it and go, okay, here's our work in progress. What do you think? I get the feedback. I funnel that back to the to the artists that are working on it. And um, ultimately, I have to sort of review every shot as it comes through until both we, from a quality perspective, and the director, sort of from a filmmaking perspective, are satisfied with it. Um, so that's often that is why it's such a lengthy process. So, for example, on Andor season one. We had about three thousand eight hundred visual effects shots, huh. and uh, probably like eight hundred of those can go by without me having to look at them because they are things like removing a boom mic from the frame, which I don't have to necessarily check. But I probably did end up reviewing three thousand shots or so, and multiple times getting the iterations until they they are what they need to be. So you mentioned there that you're somewhat of a conduit, right, between the director or the showrunner and the visual artists themselves. So are you wearing different hats when you're speaking to different people? Do you find it easier to speak to the tech people versus the creative people? Like, is that something you thrive in that in that role? Yeah, I mean, I really, uh, what I really like about my job is that in, in some ways, I sometimes have like a lot of creative uh, input when in particular when a director or a showrunner is quite open and says like, oh, we want to have a space battle, you know, pitch us something. And then the previous team and I can sort of really put something together and bring our own ideas into it. But on the flip side, what I also really enjoy is sort of the part of it where I'm almost more like an air traffic controller. And this is like, <laughs> really, it's the, the, the artists that are flying the planes and I'm just trying to make sure that they all land in the right spot and, and on time. And so, for me, some of the most satisfying thing I can do is if I brief an, an artist or a vendor on a particular thing, and in my mind, I go like, okay, it's probably this. And then they come up with something that is much better than what I had imagined, you know? And I'm yeah. like, and then that surprised me. I'm like, oh my God, that's actually way better than what I had in my head. And that's really, for me, sort of the excitement that it's not just like waiting for people to deliver exactly what I told them to do, but giving people the freedom sort of to express themselves. And, and there's, as I said, people specialize and, and nearly every artist knows what, what they're doing better than I do. So uh, just being able to work with that many like talented artists and experts is just great because I just get to sort of see all the stuff that comes back from these people. I guess on the flip side, uh, and it's probably not fun to talk about, but if you hand something over to a director or a showrunner and they're like, yeah, not feeling it, and then you've got to go back, <laughs> what is that yeah. process like? How do you approach that? That must be challenging, right? That's awkward. That's definitely um, a, a part of the job. And, and part of it is, 
there's, there's an element of client management then in there as well. And it's not necessarily like selling uh, something on something they don't want, but understanding like at what stage do you show something to get feedback? Because if there are directors, for example, that if you show them something in a rough state, no matter how promising it is, they can't extrapolate. They can't imagine like, oh, if we continue down this path, it'll be what I want. And so you have to complete it to a much greater degree of completion or, or, or a detail to even show it to get feedback. And in those cases, then it can be more frustrating to then have to take like five steps back where with other directors, and you can manage that to a certain extent, you can go, okay, just ignore anything except, you know, like we're not even going to put it in color. We're going to show it in black and white to you. All we care about is do you like the way the spaceship is moving and then trying to sort of bit by bit get these these approval steps in so that you avoid the situation where you have an artist work on something for weeks and weeks and then you go like, I'm now sorry, start over. So are we at the point now where anything's possible creatively? I mean, when it comes to visual stuff, because you know, things get ever more expansive and fantastical when it comes to what we can see on screen. Mm-hmm. Presumably, it becomes a practical limit like time or money to invest in the amount of people that can produce this thing. Are you responsible for defining the creative limits of a shot or whatever it is? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a big part early on in the, in the project where I work then with my visual effects producer, who is their primary responsibility is like the the budget and the and the schedule but that's a very close collaboration we have to really at the at the start find common ground with the with the film producer and and director to say okay well if we're saying this is the budget and this is the the schedule we have for uh, for creating this work then these these are the limitations of what we can do within that you know and i think the most successful projects are those where that doesn't become like a confrontational process, but but one of collaboration of saying, well, we know that we're in a limited box together. How can we use the money that we have and the time that we have most wisely so that every dollar we spend really ends up on the screen rather than, you know, wasting time and money um, along the way or attempting to do something that we don't really have the time or money for, and then ultimately not being satisfied with the result. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I and I found in my work that having a limit also encourages more creativity. Yeah, I agree. Because, because often having limitations then forces you and the showrunner or the director, or the creatives to make decisions on which part is important. Like if you can only have, you know, three out of the five things you asked for, which are the three that you really care about. And then often dropping the other two actually makes it cleaner, a better story, a leaner, you know, narrative. Let's move it on to Andor for a little while, because uh, that's obviously the project that you're deep in and I presume you're working on the next series right now um, yeah. I spoke to the sound department and they they were so I presume you are um, yeah. I love that show it's got a beautiful visual style and what particularly stands out to you about working on this project I think on the, on the one hand it's really the the collaboration what I was talking about the um, 
because I had worked on Rogue One with with Tony Gilroy, you know, who's the showrunner for uh, for Andor, and uh, his brother, who's actually lead editor, had also worked on Rogue One, so I had known them for a long time. And then early in season one, uh, the production designer Luke Hall joined. We very quickly sort of like clicked and found that there was no ego, there was no like stepping on each other's toes. It was really this idea of like, okay, how can we make the most of this visually? And that was really like a really wonderful experience that you don't always have. Like sometimes you just end up having an art department, for example, that feels very protective and that goes like, oh, we don't want to show anything until it's ready. At which point it can become much more difficult to have that conversation of like, yeah, you made this great concept painting, but we can't actually afford to do that, you know? (laughs) Um, So I think that was great. Like just really from the start, working very closely together and going like, okay, how do we split things between the different departments, uh, practical special effects, you know, the art department sets and us, um, so that we could get value onto the screen. And then the other part of it, which also really just fits my sort of personal interest in aesthetic is how grounded it is. Mm-hmm. I do I do really like that we chose an aesthetic where even though things are, you know, in a galaxy far, far away and our fantasy and sci-fi, for every scene, both the, the production designer and I, and driven by Tony, really tried to find like what is the what is the relatable sort of real world equivalent of that that we can take inspiration from, that we can base this on? Because that was like one of the um, big challenges, for example, was Coruscant, you know, which had been shown in the in the prequels, the the galactic capital. Um, and I'd actually worked on Attack of the Clones on on setting up some of the city for the speeder chase in that film early in my career. And coming back to that with a completely different brief where Tony said, okay, but I want to I want to know how that city works. You know, I want to, in the extreme, which he didn't do, but he said, <laughs> he basically said almost sort of as a challenge, like, I want to be able to go into the kitchen behind a hotel and, you know, <laughs> understand how the kitchen works. And so that became sort of that mindset of like, okay, how do we take this environment, which is very fantastical in the prequels, and stay true to it, but at the same time show it in a way where now you can have somebody go to work and, you know, be on public transport or um, live in an apartment building and make all of these things feel like they're relatable while still existing in this in this fantastical city. So that was that was really fun. Well, that really translates to the viewer. I've I felt that because it, there's definitely a sort of tactile quality to the technology in that show, and I can't really define that any differently to that. Yeah, I, I think a lot of that came, you know, early on. Like Luke Hall, the, the production designer, and I sort of had a conversation about that philosophically, if you if you will, where we, we kind of agreed that it doesn't matter almost how much ultimately of the frame becomes visual effects, we should always shoot something real to begin with. And so, for example, like some of the, the Coruscant scenes, Dedra, the, the um, Imperial Security Bureau uh, officer going to work, you know, we probably replaced well more than half of the frame with CG City, but we still shot it here in London in a plaza and it grounds everything in terms of the lighting, the architecture, the director knowing what they're pointing the camera at so that you have a basis to then really anchor your your visual effects into. And I think that's ultimately 
I think what what the success of this was is sort of like trying to never just put a put an actor in front of a blue screen and saying, okay, we'll figure out later what goes there. Yeah, I think that probably also translates to the actor themselves too, right? Their performance that they give if there's a certain, they're sort of planted in a space rather yeah. than just, yeah, that probably helps and, as well. And I mean, on the flip side, you can use technology for that as well. So for all of the scenes in Mon Mothma's embassy, you know, the cocktail party and the breakfast scene and all of that, um, those were actually like LED screens uh, outside the windows for, um, you know, driven by island stagecraft team. And we made different times of day for the view out the window. And nearly all, like well over 90% of the shots were in-camera shots with seeing the, you know, the city out there. And that, even though it's sort of a use of technology, again, for the director, for the actors, was so much more immersive than if we had just put a blue screen out there. Yeah, I can totally believe that. Have you figured out a kind of ratio for what the viewer will tolerate in terms of how much visual effects there is in a shot? There's something that we as human beings, irrespective of our knowledge of this this world, can pick up on that there's something uncanny valley about everything yeah. being CG, right? I think I think it's less about the percentage within a shot. It's when you do too much of the same gag over and over again that mm. then then the eye catches onto, even if you don't know what it is, you you detect that there is something um, artificial about it because because you you're seeing something that sort of is similar, even maybe maybe if it shouldn't be. So one one of the things that um, uh, I really appreciated, like in talking to a colleague of mine, David Vickery, who was um, a visual effects supervisor on Jurassic Park: Fallen Kingdom, Jurassic World, sorry, Fallen Kingdom was that, that I really like what they did on that show is that for different dinosaurs and interaction with dinosaurs, they actually had different parts of the dinosaur be practical. So for one of them, it might just be a partial head or like, you know, huh. the, the arm that somebody touches or something like that. But because every shot or every scene almost in a different way mixed practical and visual effects in different ways, it kind of is a sleight of hand where you never can quite catch on to like, oh, this this part is always CG and this part's always real. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. One thing I notice sometimes with these things is is the lack of depth of field. Sometimes that when when you're looking at something in reality, your eye focuses on you know foreground, background, midground, but when you're seeing everything in a flat screen and everything's in sharp clarity right through you know it's, it's kind of a weird i think that's then also just like a um something where you have to work very closely with the uh, director of photography so for example both on rogue one and on Andor, we're shooting with anamorphic lenses that have very shallow focus so things drop off to going out of focus very quickly and so that means then even if you create full cg shots you know full computer generated shots or sometimes you shoot visual effects shots on like spherical lenses for technical reasons that are much, much sharper, you have to, at the end, apply all of the, if you will, imperfections or the characteristics of the anamorphic lenses onto the digital content again. So you actually put yeah. things intentionally out of focus. You make them sort of distort and and warp at the edges, you know, as they would with the, with the real lenses that the rest of the project is shot on. Yeah, and then the artist is crying because they spent six months working on that show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just blurry. That's kind of a learning experience that uh, along the way in your career, you learn to go like, okay, well, 
maybe while we're building that environment, once in a while, let's look at it out of focus and see if it's good enough because, yeah, ultimately you can otherwise waste time there where it's really not well spent. Love that. Um, did you use the volume at all for Andor, like on The Mandalorian? Uh, we did not use the, the volume the way the, the Mandalorian uses, which is basically a permanent, you know, this dome of LEDs in which they, they use motion, motion uh, camera tracking, basically, um, to real-time render the backgrounds. What we had is what we were sometimes referring to as like a pop-up stage uh, for, for the stagecraft setup, where um, you build a set and then you basically erect temporarily LED walls, like very large LED walls around the set where you need them, in our case, sort of out of the windows of um, the embassy. Uh, so it, it allows you to... Because um, the, the volume can be like... a It's kind of a commitment there where you kind of in order for it to make sense you have to go okay well we're going to really commit to like having a number of sequences that play in here and laying them out in a way that they fit into this volume with a pop-up idea you can often just uh do something that is more supportive of what the art department does with the set so they'll they'll build a set that is mostly complete and then you can use uh, the led walls to sort of extend that gotcha so Moving things on a little bit to particularly ILM, Industrial Light and Magic obviously has been around since the mid-70s and, and has been creating some incredible stuff. What What is it about that company that brings you back time and again? Because you've left it a couple of times, but you keep coming back, right? Yeah. Um, I think a big part of it has been the, the culture of it um, that always felt very um, very collaborative, very open to people wanting to share knowledge, wanting to share expertise. And that's something that I really enjoyed. And, and just also like just sometimes the, you know, humility of, of people that have, you know, in particular early in my career, there were like so many people that had actually worked on the original trilogy, you know, like on the original Star Wars films and just working side by side with them and, you know, getting, them to sort of like you know provide mentorship provide advice gain like experience from them was just was just really amazing and i think that sort of um culture of sharing of of not vying for like position or anything like that but just really really just like everyone sort of trying to collaborate um and and do the focus on the work as just something that i really enjoyed i which is not to say that you know i didn't enjoy working at other companies as well but to me, I sort of enjoyed the, the the focus there was really on on just like the art and putting as, as much as possible sort of personalities aside, you know. Yeah. And producing content in this sort of umbrella of the Star Wars universe, everyone, you would hope, everyone is invested in the finished result too, right? That People really care. I mean, that, that really matters. It isn't just a just a job. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously Star Wars for for um, Lucasfilm and, and ILM has a special status, and you know, ILM does wonderful work on obviously on other stuff as well. But but what Star Wars often allows us to do is to be much more involved and and ingrained early on in the creative process, you know, and and being able, like as I said, from the inception almost like of sometimes of scripts, like on Andor working with Tony and, and having that expertise where often 
uh, directors and, and creatives come to us and go like, well, you know, I want to do something like X in Star Wars. Like, what's the right way of doing this? And then we can sort of draw on the decades of uh, lore experience that we have and our story department go like, well, you want to do this, then it's this kind of a ship and it has this kind of an engine and that's what it can do. And so that's, that just makes it really fun. It sort of becomes, you're working sort of on an ongoing universe, you know, that becomes bigger and bigger with every project. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so more broadly speaking, as we wrap up here, what what is your favorite part of your job and what is your least favorite part of your job? <laughs> um, I have to say my favorite part of the job is the, in particular now, what I'm doing now is the variety of it. It's the fact that like right now we're at the end of eight months of shooting where, you know, frequently I have to be on set or stand in a back lot or stand in a location at like, you know, 7.30 in the morning. And we have long days, you know, out like shooting and it's collaborating there with like all of the other aspects of filmmaking with, you know, like the grips and the special effects people and the camera people. And you're really part of the process of shooting the movie. And then after eight months of that, uh, I'm usually quite happy to have like eight months or so <laughs> of come into the office in the morning, sip a cup of coffee and go through my email and and really see then the the fruits of the labor of the shoot, you know, where we gathered all of that material that we need to then do our work and and then actually sitting down and, and finishing the work. So it's that variety of it. As I said, I am quite restless and I have this this tendency to want to bounce around and the the role that I have right now, what I really like about it is that that I can within that role sort of have almost completely different experiences um in different parts of the project or different stages of the project. Yeah. Um, what, what do I like the least about my job? Probably the lack of sleep. (laughs) That's ultimately it. I think, and that's probably true of almost any part of the filmmaking process. It's kind of demanding, you know, and that, that isn't just visual effects. It's when I'm on set, there's like, you know, at three in the morning, there's a grip standing next to me and a cameraman that has to work exactly the same hours that I do. So I think to a certain extent, working in film will always be something that that puts demands on the rest of your life, you know, and that that can sometimes be challenging. Yeah, absolutely. And is there something or are there things that you wish other people in production and all up and down the line of production, are there things that you wish they knew about your job that would help you do your job better? Yeah, I think the, the thing that's often the hardest to get people to value is letting us being be involved early um, because I think everyone's always worried like oh visual effects is expensive so let's you know delay getting visual effects involved as much like as long as possible but we can do so much when we're involved early we can help you know spend money more wisely avoid project problems later and so that's a, it's always a, a luxury when we're actually allowed to sort of be early on a project and actually be in the in the conversations, be even in conversations, you know, in the writer's room or in early concept phase, because it it's not just us who benefits from it, like everyone ultimately benefits from it. Yeah, fantastic. And this is this has been really fascinating. And just to finally wrap up, for anyone who wants to get into this kind of work, what would your advice be to them? I think nowadays 
you can get so far at home really on your as long as you have a a pc or a computer or you know even a mac um, <laughs> you can um, as long as you have a computer at home there is now like open source software for example blender you know it is is free to use it's a wonderful tool i actually end up um when we're in production and i have to do like quick previs or figure something out technically i i use blender and it's free to download it's free to use and there's thousands of hours of tutorials and a great community around it. And there are similar other tools for different uh, you know, parts of the, the visual effects pipeline. So you can literally just get started. And if you go on YouTube and, and look what people do with these free tools, it is absolutely amazing. I've, some people manage to really create major film quality visual effects with, with tools that are free. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. That was fascinating. And I think our listeners are going to get a huge amount out of this interview. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Soundstage Insider. Thanks, of course, to Mo and Leo. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and like it. Leave a comment. That's very, very helpful for the all-powerful algorithm. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.